0: or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to
1: 1996. The of America. She is the co uh of the San Francisco Zen Center. She has been practicing Soto Zen for about 37 years, and uh, is the Dharma heir of Mel Weitzman. And it's always a pleasure to have her. Thank you very
0: much. Thank you. <coughs> well, as usual. I'm- very glad to be here with you today. Um, I think, you know, my teacher told me once, talk about what's right in front of you, and so I will be talking today about something I've talked about before. Um, That is the uh, uh, deep consideration of how to live our life in the face of the fact that it is temporary we have this gift of life this opportunity to live this life uh, that is given to us and we don't know for how long and we don't know what happens next but we do therefore want to be awake in this life to be actually be here. To be present, to be aware, and not to sleep through it. Uh, We want to really deeply consider what can we do to make the gift of this life a gift for all those around us. Um, I went recently to a a poetry reading and... uh, and the poet uh, K. Ryan uh, read this poem as though the river were a floor we position our table and chairs upon it eat and have conversation as it moves along we notice as calmly as though dining room paintings were being replaced the changing scenes along the shore. We know we do know that this is Niagara River. But it's hard to remember what that means. And when I uh, when I heard it, I reacted to it physically. Um, and the neighbor sitting next to me, whom I didn't know was uh, Kay's partner of 30 years, said to me something at the intermission that she noticed that I had had a physical reaction to Kay's poems. I mean, more than this one, but this one in particular. And I said, Well, yes, the Niagara River uh, really was like a kick in the gut because just yesterday, no, it was the day before yesterday, it was two days before this reading, um, a very dear friend and my Dharma heir informed me that he had a diagnosis of inoperable cancer. And she told me, uh, Kay's partner, Kay wrote that poem uh, when I was diagnosed with cancer. And I have to say that that's what's right in front of me, John's imminent death. So I really can't talk about anything else. But I think that as he is making of his death a gift to everyone, he was scheduled to give, um, to teach a class at Scent Center on Dogen's engine, but decided when he got this diagnosis about a week before the class was to begin, to teach a class on the Dharma of Death. Uh, Which to me is an extraordinarily courageous thing to do. To sit up there with his impending death to teach about the Dharma of Death. And he's done a great job together with uh, another person who practices over at Hartford Street with him, um, Cynthia Keir. And I'd like to read. But, you know, what What he's doing is he's teaching by the way he is responding. He's, his total attention is on how to take care of everyone around him as he's dying. How to see that the prison network that he that he is so active in, that teaches uh, teaches Dharma, uh, he, he goes to teach Dharma and harm reduction and nonviolence at San Bruno, at the downtown jail, out of San Quentin. He wants to be sure that. Everything that he's doing is passed on to other people and he gets clearance for the person who's going to replace him. This is the kind of thing he's doing frantically, uh, being sure that his affairs are all in order and that his partner will inherit the house and not have any interference from his family and all, you know all this kind of stuff. He's just totally putting his energy in how to take care of everybody around him. It's quite extraordinary. So it's just a teaching in itself. I've always liked this poem by Mary Oliver, and uh, I'll say a bit more about it as as I can. When death comes, like the hungry bear in autumn, when death comes and takes all the bright coins from his purse to buy me, and snaps the purse shut, when death comes like the measle pox, when death comes like an iceberg between the shoulder blades, I want to step through that door full of curiosity wondering what is it going to be like that cottage of darkness and therefore I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood and I look upon time as no more than an idea and I consider eternity as another possibility and I think of each life as a flower as common as a field daisy and as singular and each name a comfortable music in the mouth tending as all music does towards silence in each body a lion of courage and something precious to the earth when it's over I want to say all my life I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I have made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. So particularly that line, "I want to be full of curiosity. I deeply hope that I could meet my death in that way. Nobody knows what happens next. Among the handouts for this uh, class, there was uh, there was one quote from Socrates. To fear death, gentlemen, is nothing other than to think oneself wise when one is not. For it is to think that one knows what one does not know. No man knows whether death may not even turn out to be the greatest of blessings for a human being. And yet people fear it as if they knew for certain that it is the greatest of evils. We don't know. We have, of course, in our culture many uh, descriptions of what we think may happen all the way from heaven to hell and anything in between. Uh, From nothing to everything. We don't know. (coughs) But I think the most important thing in the face of that not knowing is to know that we don't know and not to meet it with fear but with curiosity. It's said that, um, you know, the, one of the great Purchase of Buddhism is said to be generosity or dana or giving. Uh, But the teaching is that a monk doesn't give material things because a monk is is homeless and mendicant. But a monk gives fearlessness. A monk gives the dharma and a monk gives fearlessness. And when I first read that, I went, I don't know anything about fearlessness. How can I get fearless? I'm a monk. I don't know how to get fearlessness. So I need to study this this business of fear and fearlessness. So far, as much as I've studied it, I don't think fearlessness means not ever experiencing fear. But I think I think it does mean something like not being cowed by it, not being uh, overcome by fear just noticing yes, it's there and maybe turning toward it and actually breathing with it and feeling it and allow it to arise and subside and not allow it to chase us around um, making us run off and hide or distract ourselves with Foolish activity we want to choose in the face of the certainty of our death there's another quotation from the Mahabharata the great Indian classic where the sage is asked uh, uh, sir of all the things in life what is the most amazing and the sage answered that a person seeing others die all around him never thinks that he will die. (laughs) But, you know, I think rather than denying it, and I must say the the first week after John told me, I I was cold and I just simply could not let it in. Um, I couldn't, you know, the grief was too much and so I couldn't allow myself to even think about it. But the thing is not to deny it or turn away from it, but recognizing it, let the fact of the, the limited nature of our life be an encouragement to live it well. To live it in a way that benefits everyone. To not get caught up in fear and self cleaning and forget our connection with everything and everyone. But to live our life in a way that makes of it a gift for everyone. Whatever we have found to be beneficial to us, can we offer that to others? Whatever has given us great joy, can we find a way to share that with others? Can we take the, the gift of this life and spread it around to all beings? This, of course, is the bodhisattva vow. Beings are numberless. I vow to awaken with things. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. The Buddha way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. This is the Bodhisattva vow. This is the ideal of Mahayana Buddhism. Recognizing our total and complete interconnection and interdependence with everything that is um, vowing to honor that by waking up ourselves for the benefit of all for sharing this life with all that we're connected with and I don't know anyone who exemplifies that vow more than John does. Many of you probably know John King. He's uh, helped Isan Dorsey, found the Hartford Street Zen Center, and helped found the Maitri Hospice. And um, he's just a, a beautiful guy. So knowing that life is brief, how shall we live it? This actually was was the con that brought me to practice because I had a friend forty years ago who had a terrible headache one day and or one evening when we were having sitting around having coffee and talking together. And she went to the doctor the next morning and was diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumor and was in a coma within about a week or ten days from which she never recovered. And it was stunning to me because we were both 40 and had small children and had our whole life ahead of us, or so I thought. And so it became clear to me through Pat's death that I didn't know how long I would live, and I better figure out how to live a life that I didn't. You know, how do you live your life when you know you don't know when it's going to end? This became my big question, and for me, that question was answered when I met Suzuki Roshi and met the Dharma and said, "Well, this this looks to me how you live your life, um, however long it's going to be." Um, I want to be like Suzuki Roshi. I mean, for Suzuki Roshi, everyone, everyone, was acceptable. And his teaching was to see Buddha in everyone. To see the awakened being in everyone. And it looked like he could do that. I couldn't understand how he could, but it looked like he could. And I wanted to be like that. And I'm still working at it. You know, maybe we'll get there. We don't know. But it's a good direction to go. It's the direction I want to go with my life. My question to you is, what is the direction that you want to go with this gift of life? What's the most important thing for you? How will you spend this precious life? There is a verse that's on the han, which is a wooden block that we hit with a mallet that makes a sound like that, that you can hear all over. It's a very penetrating sound that calls us to the meditation hall in Zen. And, uh, And there's a verse that's often written on the han, and it's often chanted the last thing at night by monks may I respectfully remind you great is the matter of birth and death all is impermanent quickly passing wake up be awake each moment don't waste this life and that's for me that is the the essence of of practice is to wake up and see how we are fully connected with everything. And how can we be of benefit to everything and everyone around us? What is the way we want to live this life? What 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 is hindering us from living our life in the way we want to live? Do we get caught up in distractions? Do we get caught up in seeking temporary pleasure to sort of blot out uh, whatever difficulties we have in life? Or do we turn toward the difficulties and take care of them? Do we turn toward the fears and be with them with kindness and gentleness? Do we turn toward those who are having difficulty and see if there's a way we can help them? Do we turn toward ourselves when we're in difficulty and give ourselves encouragement and care. One of the first things, well, maybe I'll share this second poem of of Mary Oliver. As you can tell, I like her a lot. Um, And I think I've shared this with you before, but I like it. Who made the world? Now she lifts her pale pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, What else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? So no one else can answer that question for you. You need to answer for yourself, what is it you plan to do with this precious life? What feels most important to you? But each of us, each of us needs to take a close look and decide what's the most important thing for us, and put our energy and attention there. really do what we want to do. Really care about what we care about. Put our care and attention and energy where our care is. But as I say, nobody knows what happens next. But there is, you know, there is somehow a feeling that something happens next one of the one of the first things i read in zen mind beginner's mind uh, when the book first came out a book by my suzuki roshi the founder of san francisco is nirvana the waterfall he says if you go to japan and visit a heiji monastery Just before you enter, you will see a small bridge called Hanshaku Kyo, which means half-dipper bridge. Whenever Dogen Zenji dipped water from the river, he used only half a dipper full, returning the rest to the river again without throwing it away. That is why we call the bridge Half Dipper Bridge. At Eheji, when we wash our face, we fill the basin to just 70% of its capacity. And after we wash, well, this doesn't go to we empty the water towards rather than away from our body. This expresses respect for the water. This kind of practice is not based on any idea of being economical. It may be difficult to understand why Dogen returned half of the water he dipped it to the river. This kind of practice is beyond our thinking. When we feel the beauty of the river, when we are one with the water, we intuitively do it in Dogen's way. It is our true nature to do so. But if your true nature is covered by ideas of economy or efficiency, Dogen's way makes no sense. I went to Yosemite National Park and I saw some huge waterfalls. The highest one there is 1,340 feet high, And from it, the water comes down like a curtain thrown from the top of the mountain. It does not seem to come down swiftly, as you might expect. It seems to come down very slowly because of the great distance. And the water does not come down as one stream, but is separated into many tiny streams. From a distance, it looks like a curtain. And I thought it must be a very difficult experience for each drop of water to come down from the top of such a high mountain. It takes time, you know, a long time for the water to finally reach the bottom of the waterfall. And it seems to me that our human life may be like this. We have many difficult experiences in our life. But at the same time, I thought, the water was not originally separated, but was one whole river. Only when it's separated does it have some difficulty in falling. It is as if the water does not have any feeling when it, when it is one whole river. Only when separated into many drops can it begin to have or to express some feeling. When we see the whole river, do we, not, do, we not, do not feel the living activity of the water? But when we dip a part of the water into a dipper, we experience some feeling of the water. And we also feel the value of the person who uses the water. Feeling ourselves and the water in this way, we cannot use it in just a material way. It is a living thing. Before we were born, we had no feeling. We were one with the universe. This is called mind only, or essence. Essence of mind, or big mind. After we are separated by birth from the one, this oneness as is the water falling from the waterfall is separated by the wind and the rocks then we have feeling. You have difficulty because you have feeling. You attach to the feeling you have without knowing just how this kind of feeling is created. When you do not realize you are one with the river or one with the universe you have Fear whether it is separated into drops of water or not. Water is water. Our life and death are the same thing. When we realize this fact, we have no fear of death anymore, and we have no actual difficulty in our life. When the water returns to its original oneness with the river, it no longer has any individual feeling to it. It resumes its own nature and finds composure. I'm very glad the water must be to come back to the original river. If this is so, what feeling will we have when we die? I think we're like the water in the dipper. We will have composure then, perfect composure. It may be too perfect for us just now because we're so much attached to our own feeling, to our individual existence. For us, just now, we have some fear of death. But after we resume our original nature, here is nirvana. That is why we say to attain nirvana is to pass away. To pass away is not a very adequate expression. Perhaps to pass on or to go on or to join <coughs> would be better. Will you try to find some better expression for death? When you find it, you will have quite a new interpretation of your life. It will be like my experience when I saw the water in the big waterfall. Imagine, it was 1,340 feet high. We say everything comes out of emptiness. One whole river or one whole mine is emptiness. When we reach this understanding, we find the true meaning of our life. When we reach this understanding, we can see the beauty of human life. Before we realize this fact, everything that we see is just delusion. Sometimes we overestimate the beauty. Sometimes we underestimate or ignore the beauty because our small mind is not in accord with reality. To talk about it in this way is quite easy. But to have actual feeling is not so easy. But by your practice of zazen, you can cultivate this feeling. When you can sit with your whole body and mind, and with the oneness of your mind and body under the control of the universal mind, you can easily attain this kind of right understanding. Your everyday life will be renewed without being attached to an old, erroneous interpretation of life. When you realize this fact, you will discover how meaningless your old interpretation was, and how much useless effort you have been making you will find the true meaning of life. And even though you have difficulty falling upright from the top of the waterfall to the bottom of the mountain, you will enjoy your life. So since I first read that shortly after Pat's death, my good friend who had the brain tumor. It's been a kind of resting place for me when I feel myself concerned about death. I don't know what happens next. But I somehow have a very deep feeling that this lifetime is just like one wave on the ocean and that we are in addition to this wave we are also the water of the ocean every wave is also the ocean every drop of water falling down the waterfall is also the river and every river returns to the ocean but while we are here as we are alive as a human being in this moment how we live our life is the most important thing And each of us must give full attention to how we live our life. Thank you very much. I'm going to give some time for discussion. I think that's okay.
2: Thank you so much. Um, I always enjoy it you speak. And you engendered lots of thoughts and feelings as you were talking to one very mundane, um, the, the image of the water, the drop of water in the river falling as part of this image of life being that. In reality, it only takes that drop of water about 10 seconds from top to bottom. The other thing was, as you were talking earlier, I forget which poem you were reading, I was reminded of a poem I learned more decades ago than I might want to acknowledge, uh, by Emily Dickinson, which was, um, the whole thing goes, the pedigree of clover does not concern the bee. Clover any time to him is aristocracy. And I always thought that had some sort of deep meaning, but. In listening to you today, I realized if one looks at that poem as the clover is life and the bee is me, it just suddenly, I mean, I could talk for an hour about what that means now, but I like that new image, that broader image that provides giving your talk, so thank you.
0: Thank you. So the, the pedigree of the clover does not concern the bee.
2: Clover, any time to end is aristocracy.
0: She is so great. She's just so brief and so great. And that stuck with me for roughly 50 years.
2: Thank
0: you. So, yes, the thing about our life is that no one else can live this life for us. This life is the one we've been given. And for us to express the great mind of awakening as only we can express it. um, We come in all different sizes, colors and shapes and forms because each one of us is a facet of one great jewel. Um, so each one of us has something very particular to offer to the world that no one else can offer.
1: <coughs> yeah, yeah I, um, I I'm I'm with you. I think I, I once had a, just a while to speak with a. A friend was an older woman therapist who was working a lot with uh, clients during the AIDS, the worst of the AIDS crisis, and um, and I was also working with clients the same thing. And um, my clients seemed to all have very strong intuitions of credibility of some sort. In their dream lives, they were getting. Um, it seemed like um, they were. Whatever venues, um, um, having more confidence than fear about death, that there's that they that there was something more—and and she said, "Well, if you, you can't. That's, that's dishonest to support this. You know, they, we don't know. We cannot know. Um, you know, you're, you're supporting their delusions, and um, we just really went out it. I thought it was sort of outrageous that she wasn't supporting." What was a, yeah. what could have been a very profound voice speaking to them? Mm-hmm. Um, I know we can't know, but we can't know a lot of things that we sort of have feelings about, oh. have strong feelings about. Mm-hmm. So it's, we can't maybe we don't know scientifically, but there seem to be other ways of knowing other than no. pure yeah.
0: yeah, I you know I I don't know what happens mm-hmm. next. But I do have a very strong feeling that something happened to me. That's why I'm so curious. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why I want to be able, when actually my time comes, to stay with it mm-hmm. and be curious about what is it that happens to Because, you know, there's a very strong teaching in Buddhism that is no, well, there's no self, you know, and no soul, no person, nothing particular. That is me, Blanche. Yeah. There is just this collection of skandhas. Um and when when it uh, comes apart, then uh, there isn't anything else that I can say. Oh, there, you know, there's me. It's just these forms, feelings, perceptions, impulses, and consciousness. But, you know, what happens to that consciousness? I don't know. Um, I certainly had a feeling when I was with my mother when she died uh, that this body, which was now lifeless, was not my mother, but that she was still all around. There was some way in which I was surrounded by her. Uh, What was that? I don't know. But uh, um, <laughs> my husband got into this argument with Bob Thurman about uh, past and future lives. You know, Bob is a very uh, uh, strong practitioner of, in the Tibetan tradition. He was uh, originally ordained by the, the Dalai Lama. But, and they were having this argument, and Bob said, well, Lou, if you don't believe in past and future lives, you can't be a Buddhist. Says, well, maybe I'm not a Buddhist. But then he, you know, just this thing keeps bothering him. So he went over to the Nyingma Institute to talk to somebody who was in the Tibetan tradition and, to, you know, to discuss this problem further. And says, well, what is it that continues life after life? And I said, well, never mind what continues life after life. What continues moment after moment? We don't know that either. <laughs> um, my granddaughter took... She has uh, a Mac and Photoshop, and I don't know, she was she was visiting, and she scanned in all the fo- family photos she could find in her computer. And she sent me for my birthday a card and it had a picture of me when I was about... Oh, I guess I was about 11 and then another one when I was 19, and another one when I was 40, and another one now, you know, then, a couple of years ago. And she had them sort of all on a card and sent them to me and said, Happy Birthday. And it's clear, you know, that, that physically a lot of change has been going on. You know? <laughs> um, so what is it that's me? You know, what, what makes me think that each one of those is me? Now that's pretty curious. But she probably knows. <laughs> well, oh, you know, I had all these memories, uh, but there's nothing particular that I can pick out and say, "This is the essence of me." You know? It's all—it's like it is like a river. It's all—all all flowing downhill. And, you know, whatever's in the river at any given moment is made up of everything that was upstream of that river. Um, So there are all these influences that have flown flown into it from, uh, you know, all the creeks and all the sewers and, you know, all the things that have flown into the river are all in the river now. Um, And everything that happens you know, from here on till it empties into the ocean is going to change it. And all of the, you know, rocks and boulders and waterfalls that happen between now and then are going to affect it. But uh, there's nothing specific in it that says, this is me. Uh, There's nothing... There's no sort of separate me-ness That that can be got hold of. I mean, it doesn't say, like in the Diamond Sutra, it doesn't say there is no self. There's no self that can be got hold of. There's nothing you can pick out and say, there it is. It's just everything together makes us who we are in this moment. And it's always changing, and it's always dependent on everything that affects it. Excuse me, you had your hand up over here. Thank you for that message.
1: That was beautiful. Um, I was thinking that in terms of um, everybody here to some to varying degree is we're all here for our own volition come to seek out this message from you. But I wonder if you had say you were in a position to speak to somebody who was in a crisis about their imminent death or even maybe not imminent death but about their aging and, and suffering from that experience but they weren't seeking out this, they weren't coming to a Zen center of some sort, they had no spiritual practice, Mm -hmm. essentially. Where would you begin?
0: I think I would begin by just sitting with them and breathing with them. And... uh, just being present and listening to their concerns, and and try to hear in whatever they say um, what is their biggest concern uh, in this moment. And now, it probably as I did with my cousin who had no interest in religion at all, uh, just to reassure her that she had lived a good and generous life as she had, you know. uh, and that you know, she was worrying about you know all kinds of little things where she had been self-indulgent when maybe she should have been more generous, and I was just trying to just get her to just breathe and be with herself and not not fret about her worries about not having been perfect. Uh, Because none of us. We're all perfect just as we are, and we all have room for improvement. And uh, no, we're all complete just like this. And there are always ways in which we could live closer to our heart's desire and you know, to the way we would really like to live than we have been able to so far. And it's good to look at, at ways in which we haven't lived as carefully as we would like to have. But uh, we also have to look at the side where, where we have been um, unselfish in the way we have lived our life. And I think for her it was important for me to remind her of all the ways in which she had been unselfish and generous in her life because she was fretting over all the ways she had been selfish and uh, and which she regretted. Um, but to have her forgive herself for those those things that she was fretting about um, and see the bigger picture of how she had lived her life seemed to be what she needed. I mean, this this is the most personal uh, experience I have of being with someone who's dying, uh, who has no interest in in, uh, spiritual practice, but but who is concerned about being a good person. Everyone is concerned about being a good person, I think. And, uh, and I think we all have a tendency to look back and have regrets about things that we've done that seem self-serving and nothing uh, as we look back on our life. Certainly I do. It's very hard. You know, it's, it's maybe harder to forgive ourselves than it is to forgive others, but that's also a very important thing if someone is approaching death, is to try to be with them and help them to just let go of any old resentments that they have you know Um, I just heard John's last class was about forgiveness and um, and there was someone gave a quote there that forgiveness is giving up all hope of having had a better past
2: (laughs) really
0: really helpful (laughs) Um, because often the hardest person to forgive is ourselves, and, and people get stuck in that. You know. um, and I think forgiveness is a very important um, thing to do, when we're dying, both ourselves and others. Um, and you know, and to remind the person who's dying that they will. Uh, that their spirit will continue in you and in all the people who love them uh, so that they have some sense of some continuity since that seems to be such an important thing to our mind. You know, and we're not going to just disappear in the hearts and minds of all the people who've known and loved us. But our memory will stay alive and fresh with them. Those are the kinds of things that I think is reassuring to a person who's feeling someone else.
3: Yeah. Uh, yes, um, I really like um, your emphasis on how it's important to live a in consciousness and. Um, I had an experience last weekend that I wanted to share with everybody, and um, I was at a, a Native American ceremony, an all-night ceremony, for a, a Yupik Eskimo elder. Um, she's uh, <clears throat> in her 70s, and she comes from a line of shaman people in her family. And she's one of the um, a, a council of indigenous grandmothers from throughout the world. And there's five Native Americans, and in the rest from all over it, um, the globe, mm-hmm. including a Tibetan woman. Um, anyway, um, around two in the morning, we're sitting in, the up in a teepee um, up near Sonora, um, the foothills of the Sierras, and I heard this wind coming, and the wind, I could hear it coming as a as a spirit. Not only um, through my ears could I hear it, but I could feel it. And, um and it really really caught my attention and um, you know I grew up in the Native American church which is that ceremony I went to and I grew up with um, my own tradition and I've heard the elements of of the um, of the universe in many ways but that really caught my attention and in the morning when I gifted her with uh, um, an arrowhead that I had it was just, it was. It wasn't something I intended. It just. I was following the spirit of the ceremony. Um, I went to give her, embrace her, and she blew, in my, right past my ear on my right side, and it sounded just like the wind. And then she blew on this side, and then she blew on top of my head. And I realized that um, in that moment, how, what, what I came out, what I came out from that ceremony was that how important it is. To live each day, because we don't know what's coming ahead of us, and, um, and all we have is today. So I really was humbled by that experience, and um, and I constantly get humbled when I go to these ceremonies, and even coming here, connecting into that spirit, into the message that you pass on, and other people that, that sit there, at that, that place. So I want to thank you for that. And I just want to echo that, um, particularly among um, people who are similar to myself. Um, not just Native people, but all pe- people of all color and uh, people who um, I self-identify themselves um, as gay or lesbian or bisexual. Mm-hmm. Um, there tends to be, uh, for me at least, my experiences um, that I, I tend to isolate a lot. And that, that, t- that tends to block a lot of my ability to be in the present. Mm-hmm. So I want to thank you for. For being here and for sharing what you what you learned.
0: Thank you for sharing that experience with us. That's wonderful. I I never heard of this Council of Indigenous Grandmothers, but that sounds fascinating. From from many different traditions around -hmm. the world.